Thank you, Kevin. Well, greetings this morning and a thank you for all who are joining us. And uh, a special thanks, as always, to our AV team, to Kevin Lee and Kat Liu, and for JC and Kevin Chan, who are here serving us this morning, and Ted, and also Eric, driving down from Sacramento to help us to do praise. We're just blessed, and we are, are thankful. But most of all, we're thankful for the words that Kevin just read that lets us know how great a Savior we have and how great a Father and how great a Spirit He has poured into us. So let's come to Him in prayer before we come to the exposition of God's Holy Word. Lord Jesus, what a Savior we have and what a Lord. We want to come this morning and thank You for what You have done for us. Indeed, you are the solid rock, and all other ground is sinking sand. And we have no righteousness of our own to stand on. Our only hope is your righteousness. A life that you lived on our behalf, a cross that you died on and bore the sin of the world, of us, and bore the wrath of the Father which we deserved. You bore the shame and the rejection, and the suffering, and the pain you took on yourself, O Lord, our infirmities and our sins. And the Father was delighted to crush you on our behalf so that we might have a righteousness that's not our own, and so that we might know your Father as our Father. And so we want to thank you this morning for that. And we want to rejoice in that. And we come to you, O Father, in the name of the Son. And we thank you for what you have done for us. And we thank you that as your children, we do not need to be anxious. We thank you that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us perfectly, who knows us perfectly, who knows our needs and our requests even before we do and even before they appear in our minds or on our tongues. We have a Heavenly Father who has provided for us all good things and withholds no good things in your time and in your way. We confess to you, Lord, we struggle at times with anxiety. We struggle at times with fear. And we struggle at times with these things because we doubt your love. We doubt your wisdom. We doubt your presence. We doubt your care. Especially when times are difficult, when they're hard, and when they're dark. When things are not going the way we had hoped or planned. Lord, we struggle and we are frail. But we thank you as a loving Father. That your love for us is not conditioned on what we do or say. It is based on your Son who died on the cross. And so we ask you this day, Lord, give us faith that we might see how great your love is towards us, that we might appreciate that you have clothed us better than the lilies of the field, that you have already anticipated our needs. Help us, Lord, by faith to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and the joy and delight that we can rest in the assurance that we belong to you 
that you are our Lord and we are your sheep. Lord, thank you for these things. Open our eyes this morning and enable us as we come to your word to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, that we might see and place our trust in you and not ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we return this morning to our journey through the Psalms by way of Psalm 23. And the Psalms being the sacred songs of the King, what St. Augustine so aptly described in his confessions as those faithful songs, the language of devotion that kindles our love for the Lord and that banishes the spirit of pride. And then St. Augustine in his confession goes on to confess. He says, How I burned to recite them. That's a reference to the Psalms. And what's amazing if you get a chance to read through Augustine's confessions, written some seven, eight hundred years ago, as you read through them, they are filled with references to the Psalms. And he writes in the same manner and fashion of the Psalms. And his view and his vision of the Lord is incredibly big. It's humbling to read him. And the language that flows out of his heart and to his pen. And as I read them this week, I just felt, brothers and sisters, small. I felt my view of the Lord is so small in comparison to obviously King David, but also Augustine, whose heart is just overflowing with the Psalms. And he wrote, how I burn to recite them. And he's referring to the Psalms. And then he says, were it possible, how I burned to recite them, were it possible, throughout the whole world. His desire, the burning of his heart, was to publicly confess the Psalms to the entire world. And why? How I burned to recite them, were it possible, throughout the world, as an antidote for the pride of humanity. As an antidote for the pride of humanity. As you read Augustine's Confessions, you realize that the battle in his heart prior to conversion and maybe even afterwards was a battle with pride. He realized the reason he wanted to recite the Psalms and burn to do so for all of humanity because he saw that pride is what stands in our way of knowing the beauty of God's love for us. And he saw in the Psalms and in his own journey the antidote through the word of the Lord The antidote that humbles us and draws us close by faith to the Lord. And it's worth noting that these are the confessions of a man who described his life prior to being saved by Christ as a life that was burning with sexual lust and worldly ambition. It was a life that succeeded but was never satisfied in obtaining that sexual lust and worldly ambition. Augustine had a mistress at a very young age and had a child with that mistress. He also was able to succeed in a school of rhetoric and have his own school of rhetoric and ending up in Milan. Highly respected for his education and his abilities. We see he had a life that mirrored the epistles of Paul where worldly ambition and pride and sexual lust go hand in hand as does enmity and strife and all the other works of the flesh including human accomplishments. 
And yet after Christ saved him, after Christ showed him grace, after Christ filled his life with his word and the Psalms, he now burns with a desire to share God's word with the world as an antidote to the pride that keeps us from the Lord. What is and what was the remedy for the pride and coveting and lust that enslaved Augustine's life? Ultimately, it was the good news of the Lord's shepherding of his life with his holy word. And this is what we see and experience in Psalm 23. Augustine lived Psalm 23 firsthand. He knew it. And in Psalm 23, we're given the opportunity to see and to experience the Lord's wise and perfect shepherding that necessarily humbles his sheep in order to exalt them to himself. In Psalm 23, we get a chance to see and experience the Lord's good and merciful shepherding that necessarily brings his sheep to the instruction of his word. Not so that they can have big Bible knowledge, but so that his sheep might repent by faith and follow him as their shepherd. In Psalm 23, we get a chance to see and experience the Lord's authoritative yet loving shepherding that not only saves His sheep, it sanctifies and restores their souls with the washing of His Word. In Psalm 23, we see and experience the good news of the Lord's shepherding that in God's perfect way, according to His Word, fills the heart of His sheep with His holy love. Brothers and sisters, this is what sets His sheep free from their pride and enables His sheep to not lean on their own understanding, but instead to humbly follow by faith the Lord's perfect and loving leadership which alone can bring them home to Him. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 23, and we will read this psalm yet again. Psalm 23, 1. David's confession of faith, the confession of God's King. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the end of Psalm 23 is a sober reminder to us all that all our lives are moving towards a final destination. 
COVID-19 has been a sober reminder to us that some of us may get to that final destination faster than others. What we're living through right now certainly begs the question, where is your life headed? What is the direction of your life? Most people would like to believe that we are headed for heaven, whatever that is, or wherever that may be. Most people would like to believe that they are headed for heaven primarily because they like to think they've led a good life, where leading a good life means doing and saying the right things, making good choices for yourself. Good choices like going to church or serving in a ministry or maybe even reading the Bible. Choices that make us feel good about ourselves and about the lives we lead. But the testimony of King David in the Psalms and in Psalm 23 is that the good news of God's Word is not found in a life that we lead. The good news of God's Word is not found in a life that we choose for ourselves. Unlike the good news of Nike and Reebok and all the movies we see. The other day I had a chance to watch something with my son. And the same tagline came through, which you hear over and over again in commercials and videos and the news. You know, your life is what you make it. The choice is yours. You choose your destiny. What you are and what you become, that's your choice. Whether you become a LeBron James or whether you become a president or whether you become a bum on the street, the choice is yours. You are what you choose. And the life you have and the life that you will have is the life that you choose to lead. And my son turned to me and said, is that true? And I said, no, not really. The good news of God's word... Brothers and sisters, the good news of Psalm 23 is that the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's Word, is found only in the life that God leads. Because God alone is able to save us from our sin and our pride and our idolatry. God alone is able to lead us out of the darkness. God alone is able to safely bring His sheep home to the household of God. God alone is able to lead His sheep in the right way. And that brings us to our first point this morning. The Lord leads His sheep in paths of righteousness. The Lord leads his sheep in paths of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, what good are your choices if every choice you make is wrong? 
20 or 30 choices out there. Bigger house, bigger car, better spouse, better girlfriend. But at the end of the day, if all the choices are contrary to the word of the Lord, and the bondage of your pride and sin is always going to take you in a different direction, what good are any of those choices? All you do is you become a better sinner than the person next to you. All those taglines that your life is as good as what you choose or what you choose to lead or the life you choose to lead, they fail to take into account the bondage of our pride and idolatry and sin and the blindness of our hearts. They fail to take into account God's standard of righteousness. The good news of Psalm 23 is that the Lord does not leave His sheep to fend for themselves. And the Lord does not leave His sheep, those sheep that belong to Him, He does not leave them to find their own way home. Well, you go and learn how to make good choices for yourself. And I'll see you in the household and at the banquet table. You've got to learn consequences. No. The Lord does not leave His sheep to fend for themselves, and He does not leave them to find their own way home. That is a lie from the pit and a lie from Satan during times when our lives are difficult. It's not going the way we hoped or expected. We're hurting, we're suffering. Things are difficult. And Satan comes in in a moment of weakness and he is predatory and he wants to sell us that lie. Listen, you're only as good as your choices. God isn't here. You better figure it out on your own. If God loved you so much, why would you be here suffering? Why would you be here in this difficult circumstance? If He's so great, why aren't you A, B, C, D, or E? And yet when we come to Psalm 23, it's completely the opposite of that. David's saying here, the Lord doesn't leave you to yourself. If He's your shepherd, He leads. And He doesn't lead part-time. He'll lead you from 9 to 5, but from... 5 o'clock till 3 in the morning, you're on your own. No. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And why does He do that? Because the Good Shepherd knows that left to ourselves, no matter what we say or we do, we would never make it home alive. Because left to ourselves and to our sinful hearts, and our deceitful desires. We would gladly make the wrong choice. And we would gladly take the wrong direction. Every single time. Isaiah 53.6 All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. My way, the way that works best, the way I I think is good. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6. Which is a reference to Psalm 119, 176. And which is cited in Romans 3 and 1 Peter 2, 25. Brothers and sisters, do you you think that that statement, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, do you think 
The Lord wanted us to hear that message when it shows up in Scripture repeatedly over and over and over again. Old covenant, new covenant. It humbles us, puts us in our place, and yet shows us what we so desperately need. How many of you parents, when you want a night out, Put your kids to bed, sing them a lullaby, read them Bible stories, and then just uh, step out the front door and lock the door and drive out to your favorite restaurant. No, you don't do that because you love your children. And even if they wake up in the middle of the night, you want to be there in case they need you so that you can take care of them so nothing bad happens to them. And that's the Lord. How many of you as parents would, would listen to your five-year-old or seven-year-old child who say, Oh, mom and dad, don't, you guys go out and have a good... Why don't you guys go out? You need some time off. Shelter in place. It's been a long haul. Why don't you guys go to Napa Valley for a weekend? Have a good time. We, we got it covered. We'll, we'll take care of it. We'll clean the house. We'll cook. We'll do all those things. You guys just have, go out and have a good time. No, we love our children. And the Lord loves His sheep. And He knows what we're capable of. And He knows the direction of our hearts and where we go. And so He's present with us and He leads, brothers and sisters. And don't let Satan tell you any other lie. When King David says in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. He's very publicly confessing before all, the congregation in Israel. Not that he, King David, is the shot caller or the decision maker or the showrunner of his life. He's coming out and saying his hope and his faith and his confidence and his joy and his reassurance is that the Lord is sovereignly in control over his life and it's the Lord who is the shock caller and it is the Lord who is the decision maker and it is the Lord who is the showrunner and it is the Lord who leads and decides and chooses the direction King David should go. Not just from 9 to 5. But 24-7, every, every minute, every moment. And as the Lord's Lamb, King David has only one decision to make. It's not like some 25 to-do list. Dad's gone, so got to wash the dishes, got to cook. Dad. It's one thing. And that one decision is this. Do I follow by faith the word of the Lord, or do I go my own way? Do I follow by faith the word of the Lord, or do I go my own way? And brothers and sisters, that that one decision is the same decision that faces each one of us. In our jobs, in our church, in our families, in our ministries. Every decision we make, it's very simple. Am I going to follow by faith the word of the Lord, or am I going to do it my own way? Well, Pastor Mark, it's not that clear cut. Well, Pastor Mark, it's a little complicated. Well, Pastor Mark, it's a little more gray than you make it out. You make it out like it's cut and dry, black and white. 
But brothers and sisters, is it complicated because of the Lord's leading and His Word? Or is it complicated because of the spiritual blindness and deceitful desires of our proud hearts? Is it complicated because of our reluctance and fear to follow and submit to the clear direction and leading of God's Word? This past week, we had the opportunity to meet together with a group of men to discuss what God's Word has to say about a benevolent fund to provide financial support for members in need. And as we went through those texts very clearly, the Lord gives very clear indication of who needs to be taken care of, but He also gives very clear indication of who should not be taken care of. And one of some of the passages that came up very clearly is the Lord makes a clear distinction of those who very much so need to be protected, widows, orphans. But then he has very clear criteria for those who are considered to be idlers. Those who have a pattern of a life-dominating sin of being idle, of not working and providing for themselves or their families, but instead pursuing the delights or desires of their heart. And in those passages, as you read them, Paul very clearly in the word of the Lord says, you're not to support those who are idle, you're to rebuke them. It's very, very black and white and very clear cut. And as we discuss that together in the conference call, it's like, oh, we need to be doing both. We need to be taking care of widows and orphans, but we also need to be actively rebuking the idle. And it's a pattern, unfortunately, in our society and time which has been elevated to a glory status because being idle is what you get to do when you win. When you have the great job, you have the great lifestyle, you do, you get the way you want and you're able to do whatever you want for an extended period of time, whether that's watching TV, playing video games, taking vacation, you get to be idle. And we've turned a blind eye to that. So that in every aspect of our society, being idle is a form of idolatry. And he comes and says, well, you're supposed to rebuke that. Whew. Well, it's a little complicated. Well, who, you know, how about, the, how about that? But brothers and sisters, why is it complicated? Well, we feel uncomfortable with that. Nobody wants to go to the person who we know or hasn't idleness or an idolatry that's similar to ours and be the person to go there and do the uncomfortable job of being obedient to the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God's leading is clear. Men, we're supposed to lead our families. We're supposed to wash our wives with the word of the Lord. Our goal in our wives' lives is to sanctify them. Or allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify them and be the agent of sanctification by leading them and washing them with the Word, loving them as Christ has loved us. There is nothing complicated about that. Is it hard? Yes. But there's nothing complicated about it. By faith, are we going to be obedient and follow the Lord's lead? Or, Monday night's tough, work is busy, Travels an awful lot. She has a lot of things that she wants to do. Brothers and sisters, we have one decision before us. 
Are we the Lord's sheep and will, by faith, we follow the word of the Lord? Or are we going to do what's comfortable and convenient and our, or what we think is best? Are we going to go our own way? The problem is there is only one who is truly holy. There is only one who knows the end from the beginning. There's only one whose wisdom is infinite, whose love is perfect, whose love is pure. And there is only one who can lead his sheep home. It ain't me, brothers and sisters, and I don't think it's you. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. His way or my way. Julie will tell you, I have a terrible sense of geographical direction. If we have two choices to go, I will choose the wrong direction. So, something I hear, and it's a grace from my wife frequently, is, shouldn't we ask someone who knows? And the answer is, yes, we should. Yes, we should, if we want to get to that final destination where we're supposed to go. Well, the one who knows, brothers and sisters, is not you or I, it's the Lord. He's the only one who can get us home, and He's the only one willing to take us through the paths to get us there. And for Him, the right decision and the right path for His sheep is always clear-cut. The good news of God's Word is whether we see it or not, there's only one way the Lord leads His sheep. Verse 3, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now in Hebrew, the word for paths often refers to wagon tracks or well-worn imprints in the ground that lead directly and safely to one's destination, that lead you home. And very specifically and very explicitly in verse 3, the only paths that the Lord leads His sheep in, the only paths that lead safely to His house are paths of righteousness. And we're going to spend the rest of this morning, or the better part of this morning, here, hearing what King David and what the Scriptures mean by this term, paths of righteousness. And how this term, paths of righteousness, applies to us. And there's two reasons for doing this. The first is, according to Psalm 23, these are the paths, and the only paths, that bring God's sheep home. And if we don't know what paths of righteousness are, according to the Lord, we can't know if we're truly following Him. And we may be lost. And the second reason we're going to spend our time considering what paths of righteousness are is that we are a generation of churches and professing believers that have largely made up our own definitions of what righteousness is. And our definitions of righteousness bear little resemblance to God or His Word. And brothers and sisters, it shows in the lives we lead and the decisions we make. It shows where we end up, closer to the Lord, more like Jesus or further away. From the White House to our house, we profess Christ as Lord, but then we say or we do whatever seems right in our own eyes. And we do so with boldness and confidence. Well, that's not me. 
right? Or that's not you. But think about the things that we say frequently, brothers and sisters. Well, if it works for you, then do it. Or you have to do what's right for you. Or that's your interpretation. That's your opinion, not mine. Or that's not the way I see it. Or in my experience... And sadly, these are what our definitions of right and righteousness frequently are. Our definitions of what is right and what is righteous are basically our opinions and our experiences. What sounds good, what feels good, what, what seems good to me, what works well for me, what makes me feel good about myself. Brothers and sisters, is it any surprise that the lives we lead do not resemble Jesus, do not resemble God's Word, and lack assurance of salvation and joy? It's because, brothers and sisters, those definitions are only as good as you and I are. And if you're a sheep like me, your opinions, your experiences, your intellect, your understanding will always lead you away from the Lord and not to Him. But as we listen to the rest of the Psalms and the Scriptures, righteousness and paths of righteousness are not a question of our opinion. And that brings us to our second point this morning. The Lord defines righteousness not according to our opinions or our experiences or our understanding or what we think is right or wrong. The Lord defines righteousness according to His Word. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Psalm 33, 5. The psalmist calls us to sing and give thanks because the Lord loves righteousness and justice. And in the Psalms and in all of Scripture, righteousness clearly begins with the Lord and who He is and what He does, not us or our opinions. Now, righteousness is frequently defined as the quality or condition of being right or being righteous or being just. And in Hebrew, in Greek, and English, all those words for righteous and just, they all refer to what is proven and legally declared to be straight, to be right, and to be true, as opposed to what is false, or erroneous, or crooked. All three, it's interesting, all three in Hebrew, in English, and Greek, they all use words that refer to what is straight. 
And it's a reference to what has been proven or what has been measured or what has been examined or tested and shown to be straight or right or true as opposed to what is false or erroneous or crooked. And there's two assumptions that are worth noting in this definition of what is righteous. The first assumption, righteousness and what is righteous involves truthful and proven direction. Righteousness and what is righteous involves truthful and proven direction. Comes from that word straight or true. If something is righteous, it is moving in the right direction and it ends in the right place. As opposed to what is unrighteous or unjust or crooked. What is crooked? What promises to go in the right direction, but after you walk down it for a while, it leads you away and you end up lost. Psalm 5.8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. There's this idea, brothers and sisters, this idea of righteousness. We think of righteousness as a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But what's lost is, okay, what, brothers and sisters, is the direction of your life? Is it straight or is it crooked? Where are you ending up? Is the alignment of your car and your your tires, is it curved and bent so every time you drive down the road, you're veering off in the wrong direction. You're fighting with the steering wheel all the time just to make it down in a straight path. This idea of direction is what proves the nature of the alignment of those wheels. The second assumption in this definition is that righteousness, and what is righteous, requires a right standard, a right measure, a right reference point to test and to prove and to validate what is right, what is straight, what is correct, and what is true. Frequently in Scripture, you will see these illustrations about just, righteous, or true weights And the idea is you go into the marketplace and you bring your silver and gold and your currency. It might be Roman, it might be Babylonian, it might be just shards of silver. And you go to the person, to the merchant, and they have to weigh out and they have to use weights in those scales in order to see if you are paying the correct amount. And shady people will manipulate those weights in their favor so they don't speak the truth, they're crooked. And you end up paying more or you end up being deceived. We even see the illustration carried over into our justice system where justice is is this statue or this image of a lady who's blindfolded who holds the scales in her hand. She is not partial. She is not corrupt. And she weighs things according to the Constitution and the law that there's a set and agreed upon reference point that is true so that injustice does not happen. Justice is carried out. Right and wrong are distinguished. What is said in the court of law to be right is indeed right. What is wrong is wrong. 
There is no ambiguity because we are using a true and a correct and right reference point or measure or standard. And you're familiar with that term, the gold standard. The idea that what we strive for is a standard of measurement that is 100% pure and that is perfect. And that lacks error or flaw. Righteousness, brothers and sisters, is something that is proven to be straight and correct. By God's sovereignty, while I lived in Los Angeles, I ended up having three car accidents. By God's grace and His mercy, none of them was I at fault. Someone ran a a yellow light, went through. And I learned after a while after, because I became a car crash expert, that every time I go to the body shop, I would always ask the body shop, don't just fix the outer body. Have you checked the alignment? Have you checked the alignment? Because I realized it didn't take much in those car accidents to throw the alignment of the axles and the tires off. Everybody's happy to charge you money and fix that body of that car. But then you drive and you'd be pulling at that wheel, pulling at that wheel, pulling at that wheel. And so you'd go in and I would sit there and watch these men as they came out and brought their equipment to calibrate and to look and to make measurements and to make sure that the alignment had been corrected and fine-tuned. Sometimes I'd have to go back two or three times, depending on the nature of the, the, the crash, to make sure the alignment of the vehicle was correct. Psalm 9.8, the Lord judges the world with righteousness. The idea that the Lord measures, He tests, He proves, and He has a standard. And it's not our righteousness, brothers and sisters, it's His righteousness. And the testimony of Scripture is that the Lord's standard and measure of what is right and straight and true, His gold standard of righteousness and truth and justice, of a life that is straight and heading towards the Lord, not away. His gold standard is nothing less than His holy and inerrant Word. Why? Because there is nothing more perfect, nothing more pure, nothing holier, nothing more straight, nothing more true, than the Lord and His Word. Psalm 12.6 The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And that number seven is not by accident. Seven. The number of perfection. Psalm 18.30 This God... His way is perfect, or His way is blameless. The Word of the Lord proves true. And in that parallelism of God and His perfect and blameless way, without error or fault, and the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord and God, they're inseparable. The perfection and blamelessness and 
perfection, without error, without contamination, without flaw or corruption of God and His character is manifested where? In His Word. And it's proven because it proves true. Psalm 119.9 How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to what? My opinion? Your opinion? What all those other guys are doing? Told you many times, I remember confronting a young man about his pornography use and his response to me. Good member, leadership, ministry, all of those sorts of things. What was his response? Well, it's no, no worse than the other guys. That was his standard of righteousness. And we wonder, and we're shocked. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to what? What the next guy's doing in the room next to me? What the leadership is doing? Well, Pastor Mark, you, blah, blah, blah. Is, is that your standard? If it is, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's standard and measure of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is true and false, what is just and unjust, what is straight and crooked, it has never changed. It is always His Word. The Lord defines righteousness according to His Word, not according to our opinions, our expertise, or what we think. That's why that statement, well, that's your interpretation doesn't hold. What a useless point that is. Who cares about my interpretation? What matters is what the Lord thinks. And we have a choice to make. Either he's lying and he's hiding himself or he's speaking truly and he's made his truth clear to us. At best... Sadly, many people think paths of righteousness are just a list of do's and don'ts that we pick out from Scripture. As long as I'm trying to hit some of these things, I'm walking on a path of righteousness. What's the report that we frequently hear from people? Well, I'll try harder. I'm doing the best I can. Well, the best of what is wrong is not a good thing, brothers and sisters. Trying harder at what is wrong is not a good thing, brothers and sisters. It's just going to lead you further away. And if you were right in the first place, you wouldn't be in a situation where you'd have to say, I'm going to try harder. it's, It's not something that is consistent with God's Word or the Gospel. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees went to the Bible, they got a list of do's and don'ts, and they found the list of do's that they did well and the don'ts that they could do. And they felt good about themselves and felt that they were walking on paths of righteousness because they did some of the law. And they used it as a cover so that people wouldn't see the other portions of the law that they didn't do. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or in Psalm 23's language, you're never going to get home. When King David and when Jesus talk of righteousness, they are talking about what has been tested and proven in its entirety by God to be perfectly conformed and aligned with the inerrant and holy word. 
They are talking about what has been tested and proven by the word of the Lord over time to lead straight to God. I borrowed my son's ruler this morning. We use rulers. What do we use rulers for? We go to a piece of paper and we put the ruler and we see if the line is straight. Or we draw that line to get from point A to point B to see if it goes from one place to the other or sometimes at home. If our family decides to build paper airplanes or do crafts, we get that ruler out to make sure that things are straight and they're not wobbling. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord is the only standard that tells whether the entire trajectory of our lives is straight. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, a couple of straight moments, and then you're curving off here and there and everywhere. That's not a straight line. That's not conforming to the word of the Lord. It's the entirety of a life. It's the complete direction of the line from beginning to end. Does it get to its final point and final destination? And in Psalm 23... Paths of righteousness are paths that have been decreed by God's Word. They're the paths that have been tested and proven by God to be perfectly conformed and aligned to His Word. They're the paths that have been tested and proven by God's Word to lead straight to God and His salvation. He leads me in paths of righteousness. These are the paths that the Lord Himself walks on. These are the paths of His Word. These are the paths of His righteousness that lead to salvation and bring people to His home. This brings us to our third and final point for this morning. Following paths of righteousness requires faith and not foolishness. Following paths of righteousness requires faith and not foolishness. Brothers and sisters, what is the Lord calling His sheep to do? He's calling His sheep to follow His lead in paths of righteousness. He's calling His sheep to walk with Him on paths that totally conform and align with His will and His word. Brothers and sisters, you can know the Bible, all you want. The question is, is your path aligned and conformed to the will and word of God? Does it look like Jesus? Does it look like the word? Does it show the fruit? Is it in keeping and consistent? One of the things that I used to do to try and woo my wife, and it's a testimony that the Lord leads our paths and left to my own devices. We wouldn't enjoy the good things of the Lord, but I get my wife to watch these documentaries about cults. And so we'd, we'd watch these, say, well, why are we watching these things? But we'd go through and we'd see these different charismatic cult leaders, and they all quote Scripture, brothers and sisters. They all know their Bible. Some will even boast that they've memorized the entire Bible and they'll get up and teach. And yet you look at the paths of their lives and you look at the lives of their followers and you see a line in word and deed 
that goes in a completely different direction than the character and will and word of the Lord. Their words do not match their deeds. Their confession of faith does not match their profession of faith. And that's ultimately the test. And sadly, it's not just cult leaders, brothers and sisters, who demonstrate that pattern. It's a frequent phenomena in the conservative evangelical church where people are able to recite huge amounts of Scripture. But all it is, is it's a testimony to their pride. And the true revealer is that their lives are not leading towards Jesus and their lives are not following a line that is consistent with what they're saying and it's not consistent with the truth of God's Word or the measure and standard of His righteousness. They're living another righteousness. Their own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, what does the Lord call His sheep to do? To follow, to live in word and deed, to walk and to follow His lead in paths of righteousness. To walk with Him on paths that totally conform and align with His will and His word. To live lives that look like His word and are completely submitted and conformed to the will and word of the Lord. And as the perfect Lamb of God, that's exactly what God's Son, Jesus Christ, did. He didn't just say a bunch of Scripture. You look at His life. His life in entirety, every minute, every moment, was perfectly obedient to God's Word. In spirit and in truth. And the entirety of His life was perfectly submitted and in alignment with the written Word of God. When he gets resurrected from the grave and the disciples can't understand what's going on, he takes them back and opens the scripture and shows them in Moses, in the writings, in the Psalms, in the prophets, how they pointed to him. And all these things were necessary because every minute, every moment, he is walking in paths of righteousness that conform exactly to the will and the written word of God. And the test and the testimony of Jesus, what shows that he is indeed the Son of God, including his resurrection, and especially his resurrection, is that every aspect of his life is a fulfillment and expression and a perfect alignment. It's the living word of God. That is the test and proof of His righteousness. It's the Word of God, of a life that led straight to God, even if it meant being rejected and suffering and dying on the cross in obedience to that Word. And as the Good Shepherd and the Lord of Psalm 23, this is the path Jesus calls His sheep to. path that his disciples did not understand, a path that his disciples did not want, a path that his disciples were opposed to because in their opinion it was the wrong path. Why? Because his disciples' GPS and their compasses were corrupted. And everything that was true and in keeping with the word of the Lord seemed wrong to them because it didn't feel right, especially the part about suffering and going to the cross. So in Matthew 16.21, when Jesus begins to show His disciples the path of righteousness that He must go, and He says, I must go. When He says He must go on this path, He's referring to that language, must go, day in Greek. He, it's, the, it's a technical term used for divine necessity, what must be done, what God must do, because He's written it in His perfect Word. 
Matthew 16.1, Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests, and he must be killed, and on the third day he must rise. This is God's path of righteousness that has been written in God's Word. I must walk, proven by God's Word. And not only did the disciples not see this, and not only do they not get it, They object to it and they rebuke Jesus and they use Peter as their spokesperson. When Peter is speaking, frequently he's speaking as the spokesperson for the disciples. Peter in verse 22 takes Jesus aside, Matthew 16, and he rebukes Jesus saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In the disciples' opinion and in their understanding, in their interpretation of Scripture... The Messiah must triumph. The Romans must get booted out. Everything is going to happen. The millennial kingdom is going to come. So it's wrong for the Messiah, according to their interpretation of Scripture, and it's wrong for God's Son to suffer and be crucified in Jerusalem. He should be crowned in Jerusalem. And what the disciples couldn't see and what they didn't want to see is that the path of righteousness and the path of God's word led straight through the cross. Brothers and sisters, when we ignore the path of God's word, when we choose that what we think is best, according to our interpretation of God's word, according to our experience, we are choosing the path of the scoffer and the fool who says, There is no God. My way and my righteousness is better than God's way and God's righteousness. Proverbs 12.15 The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Solomon's describing Peter and the disciples at this point in time. What is the direction of a fool? It's away from God. It's away from His Word. It's away from His paths of righteousness. And it heads towards destruction. And very typically, it's a way that works better for me, feels better for me, and that I think is right. What does Jesus do? It says, But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why does Jesus rebuke Peter in that way? And by rebuking Peter, I believe he was rebuking all the disciples. Well, he explains it. Why does he refer to to Peter as Satan? He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Brothers and sisters, when our hearts are set on the things of man, when our heart are set, is set on the things of this world, when our heart is set on the blogs of this world, when our heart is set on the news of this world, when our lives are filled with those things, of what our neighbors are doing, and how they're schooling their kids, and what private school or home schools they are going to, or whether they're vaccinating their kids or they're not vaccinating their kids. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, when that informs how we think and how we interpret God's Word, 
We are fools and we are unrighteous, living by the righteous standards of this world rather than the righteous standard of God's word. And we are heading in a crooked path that leads away from God, not towards him. Proverbs 10.21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. In Matthew 16.24, what does Jesus do after he rebukes Peter? Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He tells them all to follow Jesus, the good shepherd, and take the same path of righteousness that I'm taking. Follow me. And for King David, for the Apostle Paul, for Martin Luther, for St. Augustine, the good news of Psalm 23, it's not that King David was righteous. It's not that the Apostle Paul was righteous. It's not that Martin Luther was righteous. It's not that Augustine was righteous. No, they knew that they were not righteous. They knew that they were not right according to God's word. They knew the trajectory of their life was always swerving away. By the standard of God's word, their lives were crooked. Left to themselves, they would wander. The good news of Psalm 23 for these giants of the faith is that there is one who is righteous. There is one who is straight according to God's word. There is one who does walk down paths of righteousness regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the challenges, regardless of how dark the night is regardless of the opposition, the slander, the rejection, the pain and sorrow. And this one is able and willing to take control of our lives. This one is able to feed us with His Word. This one is willing and able to lead us in paths of righteousness. This one is able to lead us home. And why will He do this? Not because we're smart, or we're good, or we've got lots of Bible knowledge, or we're trying hard. He does it for His name's sake. He does it for His righteousness, to be true to His word and His promise that those He loves and those belong to Him, He's going to find a way to get home, even if it means He has to die in the process to get us there. Hebrew scholar Dr. Ross says, In the ancient world, a shepherd's reputation depended on his ability to lead the sheep in the right direction and to get all his or her sheep home safely as promised, losing none. What is required of sheep in order to walk on paths of righteousness and to make it safely home to the household of God? It's not being smart. It's not being strong. It's not trying harder. It's one thing and one thing alone. It's checking our pride at the door that we know better than God or that we know how to get home or we know how to make good decisions for ourselves. And it's to place our faith Not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness 
of the good shepherd and leader who is able to get us home. It's faith in His righteousness and His ability to walk the straight line and to get home and to bear the blows and to suffer. It's our, our, our faith in His ability to be faithful to the Word of God. And it's by hanging on to Him and trusting in His righteousness and clinging close to Him and following step by step where He leads. Brothers and sisters, that's what enables sheep to walk in paths of righteousness. It is faith and not the foolishness of our pride that somehow we're good enough to do it on our own. And as sheep follow Him by faith, the one who leads for His name's sake, and they rely on His righteousness and not their own, step by step, their paths become straight because they are following His lead. They are not leaning on their own understanding. They are acknowledging Him and He is making their paths straight. Brothers and sisters, this was King David's hope. This was his confidence. This was his joy in dark and difficult times. Not his righteousness, but the righteousness of the one who led him. Now I know there are those of you who are going through hard times. I know that there are struggles out there. I know that there is discouragement. And that for some, life has not been easy. Work has not been easy. Family has not been easy. And many times it can be messy and hard. But what some of you know when you've come to me with these things, what I typically do is I I tell people, listen, go through the Gospel of Matthew and simply write down who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. Go through a gospel. Go through the gospel of Matthew. Write out who Jesus is. And I'm hoping you'll see all the testimony where they show in Matthew where he quotes scripture, quotes scripture, quotes scripture and shows that Jesus is doing it and living it. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is the good shepherd. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And I ask people to do this as opposed to writing out some list of all the things that you need to do to try harder. Why? Brothers and sisters, we have a good shepherd. He knows what he's doing. And all we need to do by faith is to trust he is the only one who can bring us home. His righteousness is sufficient for us. In good season and bad season, whether I stumble or falter, the place I need to come back to always is to Jesus by faith and hang on to Him. Even when I sin, even when I stumble, the place I need to be is clinging to Jesus. Because He's the one and it's His righteousness, not mine, that's going to get me home. Old Testament scholar Ross once again says, the point is that God never leads anyone in an unrighteous way. He always leads in the righteous way, which is the way home. One of the great joys in my life and Julie's life is we love to take our children to see their grandparents in Cerritos first, and then in Orange County we do that circuit. We do that five to seven hour drive down down south 
And once you hit L.A., it's brutal. <clears throat> and we know that that's a stretch for our children and that it's hard. So very frequently, what we will do is we will not tell our children when we are going. We won't let them know a week in advance. We won't let them know a day in advance. Because typically, if they know that we're going to go, they won't sleep well at night. They'll think of all the different things that they want to do. they think of what they should do. And it interferes as they worry or they get concerned or they make their plans with them enjoying but also enduring that seven-hour trip that we need to do to get there. And sometimes they'll go, why, you know, it's so long. Can't we fly? Why do we, you know, isn't there a faster way? All of which many times I've asked myself as well. But brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, We don't go through all the details and we don't give all the explanations because at the end of the day, we're their parents. We love them. We know where we need to get to. We're committed to getting them there. We pack their bags. We get the food ready. We fill the vehicle up with gas. We take care of everything. We put their shoes out so they just need to put them on. All of those things we take care of, whether they know it or not. And they don't need to know those things. So that all they need to do is get into the vehicle when we say, kids, we're going. And then we go together. Now, it's an imperfect illustration, but what Julie and I are trying to do to the best of our ability is we're trying to lead them and be with them and love them so that they don't have to worry about all the things that get them sidetracked and stop them from getting to the place of joy and delight, their grandparents' home. And as parents, we love them and we're committed to getting them there. And the testimony of their lives for that seven hours is that they are our children because their lives are going with us. And brothers and sisters, if this is what human parents in very fallen ways do, how much more our Heavenly Father and how much more our Good Shepherd, our Lord and Savior Jesus... It's not contingent on whether we're good or bad. It's contingent on whether we're in the vehicle with Him. And this, brothers and sisters, is what gives King David so much hope, a fallen sinner that he was. And Augustine, such a terrible past, but such hope. And by faith, these men, their lives went in that direction. But we also have to bring it to the other side, brothers and sisters. What is the measure of your life? Don't profess Christ and that He is your Lord and Shepherd and have a life where you've never gotten into the vehicle because you're calling your own shots, doing it your own way, living by your own interpretation. And you have a life that's going completely in the other direction and you matched up with the Word of the Lord and there's no alignment or conformity whatsoever. If that's the case, brothers and sisters, the Lord offers you that opportunity and what He calls you to do is to repent and turn and come to Him, and come to His Word, and obey and submit, so that you can live not by your righteousness, but by His righteousness. The only righteousness that will get us home. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a shepherd. What a Savior. What a Lord. You alone are righteous and able to walk on paths of righteousness according to the word. You did it. And you did it for us. And you were willing to die so that we might walk in paths of righteousness. 
that you lead us on, that you feed us on, that you wash us on, that you carry us on, and that you guarantee as we follow by faith that one day we will see you face to face and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May this be, Lord, the joy and the confidence and hope, not our circumstances, not our pain, not our suffering. May the truth of your word be the hope of all those who are struggling this day. May they know you as their Lord and shepherd, and in a tangible way, may they feel your rod and your staff and be reminded that you are with them in the midst of the storm. In your name we pray, amen.